I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 34, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 5, pages 1089 to 1103. And after that, if there's time, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter 18, 20th Century Harbingers, the Visionaries of New Church. Pope John called the bishops of the world to assemble. His summons will be seen not so much as a call for consultations as a demand for signatures. With many of the transformations already in place and many others well worked out on paper, John's welcome to the long, slow procession of high-mitered prelates on that October morning in 1962 will be seen as the fulfillment of an extended, persistent undertaking. In perspective, the council appears to have been a bringing of the hierarchy to Rome in order to show them that it, what was already happening, to give them the satisfaction of a very limited amount of participation and then to exert strong moral pressure on them to put their names to each and every document emerging from the skillfully managed deliberations. Signatures were of the greatest importance, giving, as they would, credibility to the transformations, thus making it easier for the bishops to face their flocks when they returned home with a big bag, with a bag full of novelties. Mary Ball Martinez, The Undermining of the Catholic Church. In her historic 1991 exposition on the roots of the revolution of the Second Vatican Council, The Undermining of the Catholic Church, the distinguished Catholic writer and former member of the Vatican Press Corps, Mary Ball Martinez, opens with the thesis that since the Catholic Church is a hierarchical church, the Vatican II Revolution was by necessity a hierarchical affair. Any mutation in doctrine or practice must come from the very top, from the papacy itself. There is no other way, she states. Martinez indicts six 20th century Italian prelates who embraced a vision of the church, vision of a church of the future. They are Cardinal Mariano Rampola, Pope Leo XIII's Secretary of State for 16 years, Cardinal Pietro Gaspari, the powerful Secretary of State for Pope Benedict XV, and Pope Pius XI, Giacomo della Chiesa, who served as Rampola's private secretary at the Nunciature in Madrid, and who ascended the papacy as Pope Benedict XV. Eugenio Pacelli, another protege of Rampola, who served under Cardinal Gaspari and who ruled as Pius XII. Angelo Roncalli, the future Pope John XXIII, and Giovanni Battista Montini, who became Pope Paul VI. In the early 20th century, Pope St. Pius X signaled danger ahead to the Catholic hierarchy, clergy and faithful in his encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis on the doctrines of the modernists. The decree 
lamentabili, and the oath against modernism. The oath was required of all religious superiors, seminary rectors, and professors of theology, as well as by every priest throughout the world at the time of his ordination. After this direct hit from Pius X, the heresy of modernism was temporarily forestalled and its spread among the majority of the faithful was prevented worldwide. For their part, the enemies of the church from within and without simply remained at their posts and or went underground to emerge at a more propitious time. The homosexualization of the Catholic clergy and religious is part and parcel of the phenomenon of new church. One cannot understand the former without an understanding of the latter. This chapter attempts to put the issue of clerical homosexuality within the larger context of the emergence of new church and serves as a preparatory text to the final segment on the Montinian pontificate. Rampola and his heirs. Mario Rampola del Tindaro was born in Polizzi, Sicily, about 40 miles southeast of Palermo on August 17, 1843. He was ordained in 1866 and educated at the Academia, Academia del Nobili Ecclesiastici in Rome. On December 19, 1882, Pope Leo XIII made Rampola a bishop and sent him to Madrid to serve as the Apostolic Nuncio of Spain. The Pope recalled Rampola to Rome in 1887, raised him to the Cardinalate on March 14, 1887, and made him Secretary of State, a position he held for 16 years. While Rampola was in Madrid, Pope Leo XIII issued one of his most famous encyclicals, Humanum Genus, a condemnation of Freemasonry, on April 20, 1894. After Rampola became Secretary of State, all specific papal condemnations of Freemasonry ceased. With the death of Pope Leo XIII on July 20, 1903, Cardinal Rampola, a progressivist who favored a democratic as opposed to a demagogic church, became Papabile, the leading candidate in the upcoming conclave. By any standard, the Enclave of 1903 was an extraordinary one. First, the sudden death of Monsignor Volpini, pro-secretary of the Conclave, brought Bishop Raphael Mary Deval, a Rampola supporter, to the forefront as secretary of the papal election. Traditionally, it is the pro-secretary who bears the white zucchetto after the election of the new pope. The Pope removes his cardinal's cap, replaces it with a white cap, and places his red hat on the head of the pro-secretary, making him the first cardinal of the new pontificate. Prior to their assembly, the French bishops were requested by the French foreign minister to back Rampola, an unusual interpret intervention at the time, but one that forced the going political consensus that a vote for Rampola was a vote for the continued pro-French policies of Leo the, Pope Leo XIII. On July 29, 1903, all the cardinals in the world, save two, were sequestered for the conclave. 
after the reading of the apostolic constitutions and the taking of oath to observe the rules of the election process, the voting commenced. Cardinal Rampola took an early lead with 25 of the 60 possible votes and a mere five votes for the last candidate in, in line, Giuseppe Melchiori, Cardinal Sarto, Patriarch of Venice. Outside the closed doors, Rampola's protégés, Monsignor della Chiesa, Under Secretary of State, and Rampola's private secretary, Eugenio Pacelli, waited anxiously with Bishop Pietro Gaspari, Secretary of the Roman Curia, for the good news that was never to come, that Rampola was elected Pope. All appeared to be going well for Cardinal Rampola when the unimaginable happened. Jan Cardinal Puzina de Kozielsko, Metropolitan of Krakow, rose to speak on behalf of His Imperial Majesty Franz Joseph of Austria-Hungary. The Polish primate pronounced a veto on the election of Cardinal Rampola that by treaty made the intervention legally binding. The imperial privilege had not been exercised in 400 years. Prior to casting the veto, the Polish Cardinal Puzina informed Pro-Secretary Mary Deval of his intentions. According to Deval's good friend and biographer, Monsignor Vigilio Del Piaz, the Pro-Secretary supported the election of Rampola and vigorously tried to dissuade the Polish prelate, but to no avail. The action of Cardinal Puzina on behalf of the Austrian Emperor was immediately assumed by the astonished assembly to be political. Martinez suggests that most of the cardinals assumed the reason for Austria's displeasure was due to Rampola's pro-French policies. Another possible assumption was that he was that the veto had been cast because of Rampola's alleged refusal to grant a dispensation for Franz's, Franz Joseph's son, Crown Prince Rudolf von Habsburg, to be buried on sacred ground following the murder-suicide at Meyerling in 1889. In fact, no vendetta existed, as the Holy See had given, given permission for the body of the crown prince to be laid to rest in the Kaisergruft, the imperial crypt of the Capitan Church in Vienna. The burial took place on February 5, 1889, six days after the tragedy. Immediately upon hearing the veto, Rampola rose to his feet to protest the Austrian veto, all the while disclaiming any ecclesiastical ambition. But the deed was done. After recognizing his defeat, Rampola asked his supporters to cast their vote for Cardinal Sarto. The final vote was cast on August 4, 1903, with the Patriarch of Venice securing 55 votes. The coronation of Giuseppe Cardinal Sarto, who took the name Pius X, took place on August 9, 1903. One of Pope Pius X's first actions was to issue a motu proprio, abolishing the privilege of veto given at different times in the history in history to the emperors and kings of Europe. It is possible that Pope Pius X 
misread the intentions behind the Austrian bill, as the reason for it did not become clear until after Cardinal Rampolla's death on December 16, 1913. Pope Pius X, however, did not misread the dangers to the faith posed by growing trends in certain academic and clerical circles favoring modernism and other heretical tendencies that were outlined earlier in Chapter 10. After the publication of his decrees against modernism, Pope Pius X appointed Father Umberto Bernini, a member of the Secretariat of State, to head the Sodalitum Pianum, Solidarity of Pius, which was charged with organizing diocesan committees of vigilance. These committees were to report suspected modernists to the Curia. In the meantime, Cardinal Rampola continued to reside at the Palazzo Santa Maria behind St. Peter's Basilica, consoled by the knowledge that although he was no longer Secretary of State, his friend, Bishop, soon to be Cardinal Mary Duval, had been appointed by Pope Pius X to take over his diplomatic post. Also, all of his favorites who shared his progressivist views remained in office. Cardinal Rampola retained his post as president of the Pontifical Biblical Commission established by Pope Leo XIII in 1982, and on December 30, 1908, Pius X appointed him secretary of the Holy Office. It was not until after Rampola's unexpected death on December 16, 1913, that information on Cardinal Rampola's secret life emerged and the real reason for the Austrian veto at the 1903 conclave revealed. The private papers of Rampola, which were turned over to Pope Pius X for a final deposition, documented the Cardinal's association in a secret occult Masonic sect known as the Ordo Templi Orientis. The documents confirmed what had hereto been known only to a few, principally through the efforts of Monsignor Ernest Juin, a French priest and specialist on Masonic sects from St. Augustine's Parish in Paris. The OTO is a phallic cult rooted in the ancient secret occult and magical wisdom and knowledge of the ages gleaned from Gnosticism, the Jewish Kabbalah, and Eastern mysticism. According to one of its founders, Carl Kellner, the OTO brings all occult bodies again under one governance, according, including the Gnostic Church, the Order of the Illuminati, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, and various Masonic rites, including the Rite of Memphis and the Rite of Mizraim. The OTO's most famous world master was the Cambridge-educated Alistair Crowley, a.k.a. Frater Perdurabo, the High Priest of the Gnostic Mass, a master of the black arts and magic and corrupter of females and males alike. Catholic writer Craig Heimbichner in Did a Freemason Almost Become Pope wrote notes that the 11th degree of the OTO is the initiation of sodomy. Crowley freely engaged in sodomy with initiates, thus fulfilling the OTO credo of do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. According to Mary Ball Martinez, Father Juan 
claimed he had irrefutable evidence that Colonel Rampola was not only an associate of the Brotherhood, but that he was Grand Master of the Ordo Templi Orientis, having been initiated into the Rite in, a, in Switzerland a few years earlier, when Juan's efforts to bring this information to the attention of Vatican officials prior to the 1903 conclave were thwarted. He found a sympathetic hearing from Emperor Franz Joseph and officials at the Imperial Court, thus the Austrian veto against Cardinal Rampola at the 1903 conclave. The papacies of Benedict XV and Pius XI. The reign of Giacomo Cella the reign of Giacomo della Chiesa, Archbishop of Bologna, and heir of Rampola, was, who succeeded Pius X to the papacy as Pope Benedict XV, was of a relatively brief duration, less than eight years. Preoccupied with the horrors of World War I, 1914 to 1918, the ever-growing demands for worldwide humanitarian war relief and post-war reconstruction, and the rise of Bolshevism and the Communist International, Pope Benedict XV had little time for progressivist reforms within the Church. Instead, with the assistance of Secretary of State Pietro Cardinal Gaspari, Pope Benedict XV concentrated on dismantling the anti-modernist structures set up by Pope Pius X, including the offices of the Sodalitum Pianum that were finally closed down altogether in 1921. When Pope Benedict XV died suddenly of influenza on January 22, 1922, progressivist elements within the Curia, headed by Cardinal Gaspari and working in tandem with the rising diplomat cleric Bishop Eugenio Pacelli and newcomer Monsignor Giovanni Battista Mantini, through their support behind a candidacy of a dark horse, Ambrosio Achille Cardinal Ratti, Archbishop of Milan. The declaration, the decision of Ratti to honor the memory of Pope Pius X by taking the name Pope Pius XI signaled trouble ahead for those, those prelates dedicated to the creation of new church. Indeed, as Martinez points out, the running, par running paradox of Pius XI's conflicting policies suggests that either Pius XI suffered from an unlikely case of intermittent schizophrenia, or his 17-year pontificate was a running battle with his successive secretaries of state, Gaspari and Pacelli. The encyclicals of Pius XI the most intellectually brilliant of all the popes of the 20th century, cover a wide range of topics, spiritual, political, social, and educational. Among his most memorable pronouncements were Qua Prima on the Feast of Christ the King, 1925, Mortalium Animos on Religious Unity, 1928, Divini Ilios Magistri on Christian Education, 1929, Casti Conubi on Christian Marriage, 1930. Quadragesimo Anno on the Reconstruction on Reconstruction of the Social Order, 1931. 
Davini Redemptorist on Atheistic Communism, 1937, and Mit Brennender Sorge on the Church and the German Reich, 1937, drafted by Secretary of State Eugenio Pacelli. Although Pope Pius XI ultimately denounced totalitarianism in all its forms, including socialism, Nazism, communism, and fascism, he first entered into a series of complex concordats with fascist Italy and Nazi Germany in an attempt to reach a political solution to the ongoing territorial conflict with the Italian government involving the Papal States and to stave off armed conflict in Europe. However, as he discovered to his sorrow, concordats are worthless if they are not enforceable, especially where the state is fundamentally hostile to religion. Among Pius XI's most controversial policies were the destruction of Catholic political parties, especially the powerful Catholic Popular Party, headed by Sicilian priest Don Luigi Storzo, in favor of apostolic works, i.e. Catholic action, a lay association for the diffusion of Catholic principles among all classes of society. Under the provisions of the Lateran Treaties of 1929, the Holy See received financial compensation for the loss of the territories of the former Papal State, approximately 700 million lire, monies that furnished the foundation for the Vatican's entrance into the world of modern finance and ultimately into the world of financial corruption, organized crime, and Masonic intrigue. On matters of doctrine, Pope Pius XI held firm. Behind the scenes, however, Rampola's heirs were busy pushing assorted progressive misadventures, including the Malign conversations, an interreligious dialogue between Anglicans and the Roman Catholic Church. Also, the tragic failure of the Church to defend Mexican Catholics and the faith against the Masonic Communist-led governments that came to power in Mexico after 1917 can be traced in large part to the intrigues of Gaspari and company. The subject of homosexuality, though not the subject of any specific document issued by Pope Pius XI, became an object of increased Vatican gossip with the rise of known sexual perverts and pederasts among key members of Hitler's personal entourage, including Ernst Röhm, head of the Sturmbab Teilung SA. Hitler himself was not ignorant of the power of homosexual accusations when he attempted to strike back against the church for its anti-Nazi articulations by staging a series on morality trials at which a handful of priests and religious were charged, justly or not, with sodomy and pederasty. The revolution takes hold under Pius XII. Both advocates and critics of the revolution of the Second Vatican Council agree that the role of Eugenio Maria Giuseppe Cardinal of Eugenio Maria Giuseppe Giovanni Cardinal Pacelli who ascended the chair of Peter on March 12, 1939, as Pope Pius XII was instrumental in securing the revolutionaries a foothold on the papacy. As Martinez solidly documents, and as inveterate collaborators of New Church, like Archbishop 
Annabel Bonini, CM, reaffirm. Pius XII opened the church to progressivism, both politically and theologically. Under his 19-year pontificate, the foundation and stepping stones for the futuristic new church were laid. The following is a short list of decrees and movements initiated by Pope Pius XII that propelled the new church that propelled new church forward. The destruction of the clergy. And as Archbishop Annabel Bonini records in his opening chapter to the reform of the liturgy, 1948-1975, on the wellsprings of liturgical reform as early as 1942, less than three years into his pontificate, Pope Pius XII assigned a project for liturgical reform, liturgical codification, to Benedict Father Pio Alfonso, a liturgist who taught at the College of the Propaganda and advised the Sacred Congregation of Right. Father Alfonso's general norms, however, was not acted upon at, the time, at that time. It was not until four years later, on May 10, 1946, in an audience with Cardinal, with, in an audience with Cardinal, Cardinal Salotti, with Carlo Cardinal Salotti, Prefect for the Congregation of Rite, that Pius XII instructed Salotti to begin a study of the general reform of the liturgy. On July 17, 1946, Pius XII determined that a commission for general liturgical restoration be established to consider the nature and substance of a general reform of the liturgy and offer concrete proposals. On May 28, 1948, the Pope selected the members of the commission, Father, later Cardinal Ferdinando Antonelli, OFM, was named General Director, and Father, later Archbishop Annabel Bonini, named Secretary. When the commission was dissolved in 1960 to make room for the Pontifical Preparatory Commission on the Lit on the liturgy established in connection with the forthcoming Second Vatican Council. Bonini was again appointed to serve as secretary for the new assembly. After the opening of the council in 1960, 1962 by Pope John XXIII until its closing in 1964 under Pope Paul VI, Bonini continued to function in the capacity of paratus expert to the, to the Conciliar Commission on the Liturgy. From 1964 to 1969, Bonini again served as Secretary to the Concilium for the Implementation of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, promulgated by Pope Paul VI on December 4, 1963. These seemingly mundane facts are presented here so that there can be no question that Annabelle Bonini knew of what he spoke when he made the following confession. In the 12 years of his existence, June 28, 1948 to July 8, 1960, the Commission held 82 meetings and worked in absolute secrecy. So secret, in fact, was their work that the publication of the Ordo Sabati Sancti Instaurati at the beginning of March 
1951, caught even officials of the Congregation of Rights by surprise. The commission enjoyed the full competence of the Pope, i.e. Pius XII, who was kept abreast of his work by Monsignor Montini, and even more on a weekly basis by Father Bayer, confessor of Pope Pius XII. The first fruit of the commission's work was the restoration of the Easter Vigil, 1951. It was a signal that the liturgy was at last launched decisively on a pastoral course. The same reforming principles were applied in 1955 to the whole of Holy Week and in 1960 with the Code of Rubrics to the remainder of the liturgy. The second force operative in ensuring the coming of liturgical reform found its mature expression at Assisi, 1956. This International Conference Congress on Pastoral Liturgy was, in God's plan, a dawn announcing a splendid day that would have no decline. Who would have predicted that three years later the greatest ecclesial event of the century, the Vatican Council II, would be announced? Pope Pius XII gave a fine address. In his introduction, he made a historic remark. The liturgical movement is a sign of the providential dispositions of God for the present time and of the movement of the Holy Spirit in the Church. It is clear today the reform was the fruit of a long period of maturation, a fruit produced by the thought and prayer of elite minds and then shared with ever wider circles of the faithful. In the murky waters of Vatican II, Catholic writer Attila Guimarães cites the works of the frequently quoted post-conciliar writer Antonio Acerbi, who confirms that long before the Second Vatican Council opened, a sympathetic, a synthetic school existed that attempted to integrate two currents acting on the church, one progressive and the other conservative. This synthesis, Acerbi suggests, inspired Pope Pius XII's encyclical mystery Corporis, 1943. The draft of Mrs. C. Corporis was actually prepared by Dutch Jesuit theologian Father Sebastian Trump. Its publication was a watershed event, a paradigm shift, major, a major paradigm shift in re redefining the juridical and societal role of the Catholic Church. Commenting on the revolutionary nature of Mr. T. Corpus, Father Avery Dulles, S.J., noted that an attempt to introduce the same concept of the Church as the mystical body of Christ was rejected in 1870 at the First Vatican Council as being confusing, ambiguous, vague, in inappropriate, and inappropriately biological. In History of Vatican II, Announcing and Preparing Vatican Council II, editor Joseph A. Kormanchuk states that Pius XII led the revolution under the banner of reform. Kormanchuk credits Pius XII's encyclical and biblical studies, Divino Afflante Spiritu, 1943, that was prepared from a draft written by German Jesuit Augustin Bayer, then director of the Biblical Institute, with the freeing of biblical scholars 
from former restrictions and opened up biblical studies to progressive thought, less open because it attacked the two fronts of spiritualism and juridical formalism Mystici Corporis Christi issued in the same year, 1943, replaced a purely conceptual ecclesiology with an organic one, even while asserting that the Roman Church is coextensive with the Church of Christ, claims Komenchak. The masterpiece of these reforms was the restitution, was the restoration of the Feast of Easter to its ancient splendor by assigning the central role once again to the vigil. The nocturnal service celebrated between Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, he explained. Archbishop Annabal Bonini, a major architect of the Novus Ordo, confirmed that, the, that Pius XII's action was seen as a step leading gradually to the new structure of the liturgical year on its traditional foundations. Other reforms instigated by Pius XII, said Komenchak, included the establishment of, a sec of secular institutes such as Opus Dei, the restoration of the permanent diaconate as an, ecclesial, as an ecclesiastical office independent of the priesthood, and the internationalization of the curia. Noted by the consistory of 1946, then the consistory and internationalization of the curia, more by the consistory of 1946 than the consistory of 1953. Bonigna, Bonini credited Pius XII with putting that seal of his supreme authority on the liturgical movement in his encyclical Mediator Day of November 11, 1947. He also notes that in 1945, two years before the encyclical appeared, Pius XII commissioned a new Latin version of the Psalms under the Pontifical Biblical Institute. This work, which had been brought to completion by the tenacious determination of the rector, Father, later Cardinal Augustine Bay, helped ripen in the Pope's mind the idea of a reform of the entire liturgy. The new Psalter would be simply the first building block of the new edifice, claimed Bonini. In the United States, as early as 1940, the Benedictines at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota, were hosting liturgical weeks. At such avant-garde gatherings, new mass was said in the vernacular with the presider facing the people and con-celebration in the norm. Chewy bread replaced the host. Private devotions were discouraged. From the beginning, homosexual clergy and religious like Archbishop Rembert Weakland were greatly attracted to the concept of liturgical reform as a vehicle of doctrinal and moral change. Catholic historian Joseph White was very perceptive when he noted that liturgical activists were con concurrently social reformers. The undermining of seminary life. Before Pope Pius XII issued Menti Nostri on the development of holiness and priestly life on September 23, 1950, members of the Curia informed the Pope that the wholesale changes embraced by the apostolic exhortation, especially those tied to the updating of seminary life, 
would adversely affect the priesthood. The concerns of the sacred congregation of seminaries and universities centered on the predictable erosion of spirituality and seminary discipline likely to result from Menti Nostri's novel emphasis on new methods of training and courses of professional studies that mimicked secular education. Pius XII ignored the courier's warning. <clears throat> Under the guise of seminary reform, all forms of discipline, including prayer life and dress, were relaxed to enable seminarians to break out of their isolation and fraternize with the modern world. The decline in seminary discipline and morale was also mirrored, and the general priesthood, as the Holy See began to receive increased numbers of requests for laicization, i.e. reduction to the lay state by priests. In the seminary classroom, especially in the United States, the mandatory use of Latin, the universal language of the church, was already in precipitous decline by the early 1950s. Giuseppe Cardinal Pizzardo, the prefect for the congregation, correctly claimed that without Latin, the sources of the Catholic tradition would become inaccessible to upcoming seminarians and priests, a thoroughly delicious thought to the architects of new church. The replacement of Latin with the vernacular anticipated a number of other important reforms already on the drawing board, including the use of the vernacular and sacred liturgy and the internationalization of the Roman Curia. Up until the start of the Second World War, the Italian-dominated Curia and College of Cardinals remained Catholic, that is, universal, competent, and faithful to, to tradition. Like the legislative branch of government, the Holy Office has offered a system of checks and balances in the governance of the Church and has served as a counterweight to papal abuse of power, especially when it threatened the deposit of faith. No less an authority than Reverend Thomas J. Reese, S.J., the sympathetic chronicler of Amchurch, acknowledges that the internationalization or de-Romanization of the Curia began under Pius XII. In 1946, the Pope raised the overall number of the Sacred College of Cardinals from 36 to 70, and in 1953, he added 24 more cardinals with an eye fixed on breaking the historic dominance by Italians in the Curia. The promotion of Episcopal conferences. Closely connected to the de-Romanization of the Curia was the expansion in scope and power of Episcopal national conferences under Pius XII. While Cardinal and Secretary of state from 1930 to 1939, Eugenio Pacelli backed the creation of a centralized church bureaucracy within each nation or group of nations, a practice begun under Pope Benedict XV. Today, every nation has its bishops' club, such as the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or a superstructured bureaucracy, such as Selam, C-E-L-A-M, created in 1955 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, that today represents some 22 episcopates in Latin America and the Caribbean. By the time Pius XII's successor, Pope John XXIII, gave 
formal approval to the structure of national Episcopal conferences in Anuncio Pontificio, 1959, 40 such bureaucracies were already in place. As noted in Chapter 11, there was justifiable concern among American bishops when the NCCB slash USCC was created in 1966 that the new Episcopal bureaucracy would undermine the authority of the individual bishop and interfere with the age-old line of transmission that has existed between the bishop and the Holy See in the person of the Pope. The creation of new church would have been very difficult, if not impossible, without the existence of these vast and universal bureaucratic structures in the U.S., the homosexual collective personified by New Ways Ministry could hardly have had its way with the church had it not been for the cooperation and resources of the NCCB slash USCC and its successor, the USCCB. One could cite numerous other examples, including the ill-fated updating of religious orders to document the unhappy fact that the current revolution sweeping the Roman Catholic Church today began in earnest at the top with Pope Pius XII. The completion of the revolution would have to wait for Pope Paul VI with Pope John XXIII serving as the bridge between the two pontiffs, enemies from without. Thus far, this chapter has concerned itself with personalities and incidents that have contributed to the Vatican II revolution from within the Roman Catholic Church during the first half of the 20th century. In this enormous task, the visionaries of New Church were happily and ably assisted by the Church's traditional enemies from without. Among these, international communism, international Freemasonry, and international Jewry Zionism hold a special place. I have selected international communism to demonstrate how these outside forces have contributed to the revolution in the Catholic Church, although I could just as easily have chosen Freemasonry or international Jewry Zionism, as they all proceed from the same font. To understand one is to understand all, for while each wears a different face, they are all bound together by the same tale that identifies their origin, the devil. Pius XII on the evil of communism in Divini Redemptoris issued on March 19, 1937. Pope Pius XI set forth the position of the Roman Catholic Church on communism yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Readers who are from unfamiliar with this encyclical will want to acquaint themselves with this important work as it is the last of its kind to be written in the 20th century by any pontiff from Pope Pius XII onward. The following excerpts from Divini Redemptoris explain why communism is intrinsically wrong and is and always will be an enemy of God, Christ, Church, an enemy of God, Church, and State. For ever since the days when groups of intellectuals were formed, in an arrogant attempt to free civilization from the bonds of morality and religion, our predecessors overtly and explicitly drew the attention of the world to the consequences 
of the de-Christianization of human society, with reference to communism, our venerable predecessor, Pius IX, of holy memory, as early as 1846, pronounced a solemn condemnation in which he confirmed in the words of the syllabus directed against that infamous doctrine of so-called communism, which is absolutely contrary to the natural law itself, and if once adopted, would utterly destroy the rights, property, and possessions of all men, and even society itself. Later on, another of our predecessors, the immortal Leo XIII, in his encyclical Quad Apostolici Munaris, defined communism as the fatal, fa fatal plague which insinuates itself into the very marrow of human society only to bring about its ruin. Five, in our encyclical Miserentissimus Redemptor, Quadragesimo Anno Caritati Christi, Aterba Anami, Delectissima Nobis, we raised a solemn protest against the persecutions unleashed in Russia, in Mexico, and now in Spain. 8. The communism today, more emphatically than similar movements in the past, conceals in itself a false messianic idea, a pseudo-ideal of justice, of equality, and fraternity in labor impregnates all its doctrine and activity with a deceptive mysticism which communicates a zealous and contagious enthusiasm to the multitudes entrapped by a delusive promise. 58. See to it, venerable brethren, that the faithful do not allow themselves to be deceived. Communism is intrinsically wrong, and no one who would save Christian civilization may collaborate with it, collaborate with it in any undertaking whatsoever. Those who permit themselves to be deceived into lending their aid towards the triumph of communism in their own country will be the first to fall victims of their error. And the greater the antiquity and grandeur of this Christian civilization in the regions where communism successfully penetrates, so much more devastating will be the hatred displayed by the godless. In Chapter 3 on Renaissance England, this writer documented the successful infiltration and subversion of the Roman Catholic Church, including the attempted moral corruption of seminarians and priests by Protestant enemies at the English College in France during the Elizabethan period. In Chapter 5, we explored the connections between the world and the English-born and bred Cambridge spies and the European Hamantern during World War One, World War Two, and the post-Cold War era. In this next to final chapter, we will examine the decree. We will examine the degree to which the communists were able to successfully penetrate and subvert the Catholic Church in the United States during the Stalin era and beyond, and to determine if these actions contributed to the rise of homosexuality in, Catholic, in the Catholic priesthood and religious life in the United States. Since it is always helpful to go from the known to the unknown, let us begin our inquiry with a look at 
a successful secular model of communist penetration, the administration of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-1945, followed by a study of the equally successful subversion by the Communist International of non-Catholic groups and institutions in the United States during the same time period. FDR, no reds under the beds. In terms of overall Soviet penetration, no single U.S. administration was ever more thoroughly done in that than done in than that of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. There may not have been a communist spy under every bed in the White House, but there were Soviet agents, moles, and sleepers in every United States wartime and intelligence agency, including the Departments of State, Treasury, Justice, and Defense, the Office of Strategic Services, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Manhattan Project, and the Atomic Energy Commission, all New Deal agencies, the staff of U.S. Senate and House committees, and the U.S. House of Representatives. It has only been within recent years with the release of the highly classified Venona Codex in 1995 and the opening of Soviet files to research scholars such as Harvey Clare, John Earl Haynes, and Kirill M. Anderson, authors of The Soviet World of Communism, that Americans have been able to appreciate the breadth and depth of the communist espionage not only against the Roosevelt administration, but against all of Stalin's target populations and institutions. In sharp contrast to Stalin, who was overtly paranoid about spies and traitors, Roosevelt was under paranoid and dismissed the whole idea of espionage rings within his administration as absurd. To repeat Austrian historian Ernst Tobisch's observation, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was so completely engrossed in his liberal Masonic internationalism that he was completely oblivious to Stalin's long-term plans of conquest. Among the most important of the Soviet agents planted in the Roosevelt administration were Alger Hiss, assistant to Secretary of State Edward Stettinius, Jr., Harry Dexter White, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and Lawton Curry, White House liaison to the State Department, to the State Department and FDR's top personal aide. In 1936, there were so many communists in the State Department that in a black comedy of errors, Hiss attempted to recruit a colleague, Noel H. Field, who had connections to the State Department and League of Nations, but Field was already working for Soviet military intelligence. Hiss and the American-born Cambridge-educated and State Department volunteer Michael Strait also tried to recruit one another. In 1940, President Roosevelt was able to persuade Pope Pius XII to Deep Six Divini Redemptoris and to use the offices of the Papal Nuncio to, in Washington, D.C., to quell the opposition of certain American bishops and outspoken Catholic laymen to the President's Lend-Lease program that gave Roosevelt the power to sell 
land and lease war materials, military information, and technology to any country he deemed necessary to ward off aggression against the United States, including the Soviet Union. The papal nuncio Monsignor Amietto Sikunani dutifully instructed the American bishops to tell their flocks that they would that they could support such aid as it was designed to help the Russian people, not the communist regime of Stalin. Congress passed the Lend-Lease Law on March 11, 1941, without Catholic opposition. Uncle Joe Stalin received over $11 billion in U.S. aid. To show his appreciation, Stalin used the U.S. bombers that were part of the Lend-Lease fleet to transport tons of U.S. classified documents stolen by Soviet spies from Washington, D.C., Los Alamos, where Lavrenti Beria, head of the NKBD, had 29 active agents at work and other U.S. intelligence centers to the Soviet Union. Although some of the diplomatic mail pouches were routinely opened for security purposes, the Army officers who examined the contents hadn't a clue as to the significance of references to the Manhattan Engineering District, Oak Ridge, Uranium, and Cyclocon, but Stalin did. President Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945. Within hours, Vice President Harry S. Truman was sworn in to succeed him as the 33rd President of the United States. At that moment in history, Stalin knew more about the atomic bomb and other U.S. military defense and diplomatic secrets than did Truman. The dangers posed by Truman's ignorance of national security measures were compounded by his unbelievable naivete regarding the trustworthiness of Stalin. By the time Truman came to his senses, the Red Army occupied most of Eastern Europe and had initiated the blockade of West Berlin, China, and had fallen to Chairman Mao and his agrarian reformers, and the Soviets had detonated an atom bomb. Ex-communists break the silence. Prior to the public testimony, a number of important defectors from the American Communist Party in the mid to late 1940s, the American people were as a whole completely oblivious to the dangers and damage wrought by the Soviet espionage apparatus in the United States. Since the information obtained by the Bonona decrypts were kept secret, the little Americans knew about communist espionage in the United States came from sworn, the sworn testimony of high-level Communist Party defectors before the United States House and Senate during the Cold War. The, they included Elizabeth Bentley, Whitaker Chambers, Louis Budens, Benjamin Gitlow, Manning Johnson, and Bella Dodd. All but Whitaker Chambers were knowledgeable concerning the Communist infiltration of U.S. churches. Louis F. Budens was managing editor of the Daily Worker and a high-level member of the Communist Party USA, CPUSA, from 1935 to 1945. At a secret meeting of the party's Central Committee in December 1938, the minutes 
of which were sent to Moscow, Budenz explained the importance of Catholics as a group. We can see what this Catholic question means in the building of the Democratic Front. When we consider the Catholics in the Democratic Party, he said, the overwhelming majority of Catholics of all national origins are Democrats. We cannot begin to touch the Democratic Party at any point, particularly in the industrial centers and its progressive wing, without being confronted with actual active Catholic leaders. After his defection in 1950, Boudin returned to the Catholic Church and became assistant professor of economics at Fordham University and served on the faculty at Seton Hall University. His testimony before various U.S. Senate committee investigations on Soviet espionage activities in the United States included detailed information on Soviet infiltration and influence of Protestant churches and schools of divinity, including New York City's Union Theological Seminary. Budenz named Pastor John Howard Mellish of the Episcopal Church of the Holy Trinity in Brooklyn Heights, Episcopal Pastor William B. Spofford, Sr., a leader of the American League against war and fascism, and Joseph F. Fletcher, professor of practical theology at the Episcopal Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as active members of the Communist Party. Boudin's charges were backed up by fellow party defector Benjamin Gitlow, a Jewish socialist who had helped establish the CPUSA in 1919. Gitlow claimed that shortly after the formation of the Third Communist International and the United Front in 1921, Lenin ordered the start of a campaign to infiltrate churches worldwide. According to the Milanari, it was Lenin's belief that the Secretary of the Communist Party in a Catholic state must dress himself up in a Franciscan robe to succeed. Budenz's and Gitlow's testimony was in turn supported by Albert Bussert, a leader of the French Comintern and secretary of the French Communist Party from 1932 to 1939. Bussert was instrumental in establishing the French Popular Front against fascism. He was expelled from the party in 1939 and later became an active anti-communist. This is the end of my reading from the Right of Sodomy, Homosexual, and the Catholic Church, and I have no time now for the catechism because we're already at 58 minutes. Don't want to go over time. So I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.